Romans chapter 10 is where we are. When we left off last week, halfway through the chapter, Paul was talking about the gospel, which, which doesn't say much, because from the time that he was converted back in Acts 9, from the time that he was saved until the time that he's beheaded, Paul's always talking about the gospel. Paul's always telling us how he was saved from sin and death and Satan and how we can be too. Paul's always talking about the grace of Jesus. And last week, where we camped out was Romans 10, verse 9, if you recall. Paul telling us how we can be saved. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And we spent last week talking about what that means. And repentance and forgiveness and righteousness. The great exchange, Jesus trading places with us. Dying in our place, exchanging his perfect life for our wretched life. Taking all of his sin upon himself in exchange for his righteousness. Making you and I, who are enemies of God, into friends, into children. That was last week. That is the gospel, and, and it is glorious. It's amazing, it's majestic, it's wonderful. It's, we, could, we, could, we could just keep adding adjectives for the next 45 minutes and it wouldn't be enough. Whatever words we come up with to describe the gospel, the reality is better, right? Jesus is better. And the forgiveness that he purchased with his blood on the cross is exceedingly, abundantly better. And, Paul continues this morning, it's available to anyone. For the scripture says, verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, will not be put to shame, will go to heaven, will enjoy eternal life with Jesus, whoever believes on him, Jew or Gentile, Jew and Gentile. For there's no distinction, Paul continues, there's no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek, Gentile in other words, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. I meant what I said, Paul says, verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, we talked a lot about, last, uh, about context last week. Remember, Paul, Paul is, is responding to the pushback he's anticipating from Jewish readers up in Rome. Jewish believers in the church that he's writing to who might hear what Paul just said and freak out a little bit. You're bringing the gospel to Gentiles, Paul. Just, 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 just wait a minute. I mean, it was okay when they were getting saved here and there just, you know, by osmosis, by hanging around with us. But the gospel's got to go to Israel, Paul. We're God's people. Yes and no, Paul says. Israel is God's chosen people. He doesn't dispute that at all. There's no question about that. There's no doubt at all about that. Israel is special in God's eye. And Paul very specifically, very carefully, never disputes that. Israel's the apple of God's eye, but his point to his readers is that right now, in, in, in this moment, in this chapter, he's not talking about the uh, he's not talking about Israel, rather, he's talking about the gospel, and the gospel is for everyone. Galatians 3:28, Paul wrote years ago by this time, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Not talking about Israel, talking about the gospel, talking about grace, talking about forgiveness, and these things are available to anyone, verse 13, who calls on the name of the Lord. And we live in a time, this is where Paul is going, 
where the whosoever's particularly in God's sights are the Gentiles. We live in a time, Paul is saying, in which God is giving the Gentiles especially the opportunity to be the whosoever's, to call on the name of the Lord. What, why am I going to the Gentiles? That's, that's the criticism Paul is responding to. Remember, Paul anticipates what his reader is going to say and then answers that. This is the question he's answering. Paul, why are you going to the Gentiles? Answer, because God wants to reach the Gentiles. He wants to rescue people. He wants to save people out of the Gentile world. How are they saved? By calling on the name of the Lord. By believing Jesus died for their sin. By putting trust in him, by choosing to follow him, which means somebody's got to tell them about him. That's why I'm going to the Gentiles, Paul says, verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? I'm going because it's God's plan, Paul says. Now, verse 14 and the first part of 15, he, Paul's form of argumentation is sometimes very Eastern. It's sometimes very Jewish. It's sometimes very different than how you and I would construct an argument. For you and I, it probably makes more sense if we read it bottom to top. God sends out people to share the good news. The lost sinner hears the gospel, God's offer of forgiveness and friendship. Some believe, some call on the name Jesus, and those who do are saved. That's what Paul just said, just in reverse. God sends. God sends. And because he sends, we're sent. And his question back to his questioners is, how can that be a bad thing? How can what I'm doing be a bad thing? Because doesn't the word of God say, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things. God thinks I'm beautiful, Paul says. So why exactly do you guys have a problem? What's interesting is when Isaiah says what Paul just said, when Isaiah says what Paul just quoted, Isaiah 52, 7, Isaiah talks about the beautiful feet of him who brings glad tidings of good things. Talking about who? Who's him? Jesus. Which if you didn't already know that, Isaiah 52 comes right before Isaiah 53, which is all about Jesus. All I'm doing, this is Paul's point in quoting it, all I'm doing is continuing his ministry. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. I'm seeking out the lost and sharing the good news of how they can be saved. I'm continuing what Jesus started. But what about Israel, Paul? You know, the definition of a radical, someone who won't change their mind and won't change the subject. What about Israel? They have, Paul says, what about Israel? They've not obeyed the gospel, verse 16. What do you want to know? They heard the gospel. They chose not to obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Wednesday night, folks, you recognize that as the beginning of Isaiah 53. Wednesday night, folks, because this is what we've been going through on Wednesday nights. But probably most of us recognize that. Lord, who has believed our report? But one of the things we've been talking about on Wednesdays as we've gone through Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and, and, and the last three verses of 52, which really are part of the same thing, 
is Israel's prayer of repentance at the end of the tribulation. Quick end times refresher. What we call the tribulation, what is sometimes referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, scripture also calls the time of Jacob's trouble. It's seven years, hasn't happened yet, but it's seven years of chastening for Israel. Chastening is discipline, not discipline to destroy, discipline to correct, discipline to instruct. The purpose of the tribulation is to chasten Israel to repentance. And at the end of that seven years, when, when, when it served its purpose, when Israel cries out and confesses their national sin of rejecting their Messiah, when Israel calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus says, you won't see me again until you, you, you say, blessed are those who come in the name of the Lord. When you call on the name of the Lord and you're saved, Jesus will return. And when Israel calls in the name of the Lord, they use the words that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 53, starting with who has believed a report. It hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened in our day, so certainly it hadn't happened in Paul's day. In Paul's day, as in our day, Israel is still suffering from the unbelief that one day God will chasten them for. But but all of that to, to say Paul is throwing the question back at them. You're asking about Israel. Why is that exactly? They heard the report and didn't believe it. The report, the news, the story that Messiah had come, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe Jesus was the Mashiach Nigid of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. They didn't believe that he was the Christ, that he'd come to save. They didn't believe the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, verse 17. He's explaining what went wrong, what happened. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we hear the word of God, it always presents us with a choice, doesn't it? Believe, don't believe. Obey, don't obey. Share, don't share. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They heard the word of God prophesied in God's word and refused to believe. Jesus came and said, do you want to be saved by grace through faith? And they said, no, thanks, we're good. Israel heard the gospel. Paul emphasizes it again in verse 18. Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. He's quoting Psalm 19.4 for the purpose of saying, yo, for three years Jesus preached the gospel. For three years Jesus taught the word. For three years Jesus did miracles and cast out demons and healed the sick. He did everything he could to share the gospel and authenticate the gospel up to and including rising from the dead. For three years. For three years without interruption, Jesus declared the gospel. And for the 25 years after that, Paul's writing in like 57 AD, for the past 25 years, Jesus' disciples and the disciples' disciples have been declaring the gospel. Israel has heard the gospel. They just haven't believed it. But why are you surprised, Paul asks in verse 19. Did Israel not know? In other words, didn't God tell us it was going to be like this? He did. In the days of Moses, 2,000 years before Jesus, God said through Moses, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. When you rebel against me, God said in Deuteronomy 32, not if, but when, because he knew that they would, God says, I will use outsiders. I will use foreigners, Gentiles. 
not to destroy you, although I could, and by, by, by my justice, I should, but in my mercy, I won't. I will use outsiders to win you back. I'll take the love that I have for you, I'll share it with them to make you jealous, to keep in front of you what you're missing, so that one day, one day, you'll decide you want it again. God said that was what he was going to do. When Israel rejects me, I'm not going to sit around and wait for them to change their minds because I know how they are. They won't. I'm not going to wait for them to change their minds. I'm going to help them change their minds by chastening them on the one hand, by putting my love on display on the other hand. I'm going to take the love that I have for them. I'm going to lavish it upon the Gentiles. God said he was going to do it. He said he was going to take the love that, I'm sorry, the salvation that he offered Israel and lavish it upon the Gentiles, offer it to the Gentiles, and he has, he is. And the irony, Paul says in verse 20, is the Gentiles weren't even looking for it. This time he's quoting Isaiah, "I, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me. The Gentiles didn't know they needed to be saved, didn't know they could be saved, and they certainly wouldn't have expected the God of Israel to be the one doing the saving. I mean, why would the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob save Gentiles? Paul's saying to the readers up in Rome, I know that's your question, and it's their question too. But Jesus is the answer. Your question is their question. Why would the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob save the Gentiles? And the answer is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life for everyone. And now the Gentiles are hearing that. And they're believing that. They're receiving that. By faith, God is forgiving them and making them his children. Yes, says Paul, guilty. I'm bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. Why? Because God ordained it after Israel refused it. Eventually, Israel will acknowledge that. Eventually, Israel will repent and profess it was Jesus all along. But today, verse 21, today in Paul's day, today in our day, God laments. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I stretched out my hand, my right hand of friendship to Israel, God says, and Israel smacked it away. So yeah, Today my gospel, today my grace goes to the Gentiles. And, and Paul's point is that's his, his story as well. Paul reached out his hand to Israel first, didn't he? I mean, he, that's how he opened the letter, Romans 1.16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. That's, that, that was Paul's ministry from day one, back in the book of Acts from the earliest days of his ministry in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey, always to the Jew first. He'd get to a new town, he'd get to a new place. Where's there a synagogue? Where's there a prayer meeting? Where are the Jewish people? I'm going to start with them. And some believed, and most refused. So Paul says, yeah, I'm a Jewish apostle to a Gentile world, and I'm bringing them the good news that a a Jewish Messiah died for them. That's what I'm doing. And I'm not rebelling by doing that. I'm not sinning by doing that. And I haven't abandoned Israel in doing that. I'm praying for Israel. He said that at the beginning of the chapter. 
I'm praying for Israel, but I'm obeying the Lord. Are we obeying the Lord? Are we continuing Paul's ministry? Paul said he was continuing Jesus' ministry. Are we continuing Jesus' ministry to seek out the lost that they might be saved? Are we carrying the gospel of peace to the Gentiles? I saw something on Ye Old Book of Faces this week. I was on my way to find something else, so I, I didn't stop, I didn't comment, and and I didn't quote it, I can't quote it exactly because it was one of those things I didn't even notice that I was noticing it until 10 minutes later it was sticking with me and it, and it has continued to stick with me. The quote, as near as I can remember it, is that the purpose of the church, this person said, the purpose of the church is not to win the lost. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. I didn't stop to comment because, like I said, I was, I was looking for something else. But if I had, I probably would have said, okay, um, hang on. Can, can we get a timeout? How is that not a false dichotomy? The purpose of the church is not this, but that. It's not to win the lost, but rather, but only to glorify. I think you're framing something as an either-or that would be more rightly understood as a both-and. And in fairness, maybe, maybe I'm not capturing it exactly because I am doing this from memory, but, but if the person that I was reading didn't say it exactly that way, lots of other people are willing to. I think I've got it right, but, but almost every week I encounter some version of this dichotomy. The church isn't about winning the lost, it's about making disciples. The church isn't about winning the lost, it's about preaching the word. The church isn't about winning the lost, it's about loving people. The church isn't about winning the lost, it's about glorifying God. Why does it have to be an either or? Why are we trying to cram a fairly epic subject, the purpose of the church, why are we trying to cram that into a soundbite? Not this, but that. Why, why does it need to fit in a nice little box? Not this, but that, and only that, and nothing but that. Is it possible, I'm just theorizing here, but is it possible it's because we're more comfortable with this than we are with that? Is it possible that deep down in places that we don't talk about at church, we'd prefer a definition of church that doesn't involve sharing our faith. Sorry if that's blunt. But we can't ignore what Paul just said. Paul just got done saying, verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Paul just got done saying it is our calling, our mission, our mandate to bring the gospel to the world, to go to the lost, to seek them out that they might be saved. That might be uncomfortable. I find it uncomfortable. But it's very much what the church, what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. Is it the only thing we're supposed to be about? Okay, that chewier conversation. 
If someone wanted to say the mission of the church is not only exclusively about winning the lost, it's ultimately about glorifying God, I could probably get behind that, some, some, some both-and construction of that, because there's truth in that. More than a little truth, the ultimate purpose of our lives is to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 and a bunch of other places. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, I have formed him, God says. What God created, he created for his glory. The purpose of creation and everything in it, which includes us, is to glorify God. So yeah, every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our attitudes, yeah, they should point to God. They should glorify God. They should celebrate his greatness and his goodness and his mercy and his grace and all of his other attributes. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatsoever you do, Paul says, do unto the glory of God. So if someone wants to say that's the right understanding of our purpose, that's the most succinct, straightforward expression of God's will for our lives, okay, I'm not going to argue because the word of God says it. We are here to glorify God. But let's keep going. Let's scratch at that a little bit. How do we do that? If glorifying God is our purpose, philosophers would say first purpose, foundational purpose, the purpose from which every other purpose, intent, or action follows. If glorifying God is our first purpose, how do we do that? Let's, 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 let's scratch at this. Let's tug at this thread. Let's see where this takes us. If we want to talk about how to glorify God, we'd probably start with the two great commandments, wouldn't we? Matthew 22, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's, that's probably where we would begin. You want to glorify God? Love God, love people. How do we do that? Well, if you, if you search Scripture, how do I love God? It, it, there's lots of answers. It's actually a really great study. Worship him. You know, enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Serve him. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Serve him. Be like him. Be holy, God says. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. How do we love God? Obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let's follow that. What's the last commandment that Jesus gave us before ascending to heaven? Preach the gospel, make disciples, be witnesses. Three ways of saying the same thing. Reach the lost. See how we got there? We want to glorify God. Glorifying God is loving God. Loving God is keeping the commandments. Keeping the commandments includes reaching the lost. Loving people will get us there even faster. What's the most loving thing we can do for someone? Tell them how to escape hell. Tell them how to be reconciled to God the Father, how to be forgiven, which brings us back to, wait for it, reaching the lost. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. That's great, and I mean that. We do that by loving him and loving people in his name. Also great. And one of the ways we do both of those things at the same time, one of the ways we glorify God, high on the list, in fact, is telling people how they can escape the coming wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot say the purpose of the church isn't reaching the lost over here. It's exclusively and only glorifying God over here. No, it's two, two parts of the same thing. We can't separate the two. 
We're called to have beautiful feet. Verse 15. What are beautiful feet in God's eyes? The feet that carry the gospel of peace to the world. Our feet. We're called to have those feet. We are. Not me because I'm the pastor. Not me and a handful of leaders. We, each of us, we, all of us, we're sent. Jesus sent us. He said, continue what I started. Go where I haven't gone yet. Speak to the people that I haven't reached so far. He sent us. He sent us and he's still sending us. How do I know? We're still here. We were sent into this world and he hasn't taken us out yet. And it's worth noting, the only thing we can do here to glorify God. Go back to that first purpose. Our purpose to be here, our purpose for our lives, our purpose here is to glorify God. What's the one way that we can glorify God here in this life that we can't do in heaven? Tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. You do a, a, a more thorough study in Scripture than we have time for. If you, if, you, if you list, if you heap up all of the different ways the Bible tells us we can glorify God, worship, serve, obey, praise, surrender, it's a long list. Every one of them you'll find we get to do in heaven also. Except reach the lost. That's not to say that we shouldn't do all of those other things while we're here. Worship, serve, obey, praise, surrender, and, and, and the rest. We can do those things. We should do those things. They are all important. What's interesting is how connected most of them are to reaching the lost, though. Well, it's not just about reaching the lost. It's about making disciples. Why? It's not just about reaching the lost. It's about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Why? It's not just about reaching the lost. It's about building the church. It's about strengthening the, the fabric of community. But don't all of those things in one way, shape, or form help us reach the lost? You know, on the way in, our, our, our church's mission statement, win, build, and send. Win a disciple for Jesus Christ. Build them up in the Lord. Send them out so that they can be used of God to win disciples for Jesus Christ who can be built up in community and sent out and so on and so on. This is what the church is supposed to be about. Stop yelling at me, Patrick. <laughs> Not yelling. Okay, maybe a little. But I, but I, but I, I get that what's going on for, for some of us is, okay, you keep telling me to do this thing and I don't know how to do it. You keep telling me I'm supposed to be doing something and I'm not sure how to start. Okay, that's fair. But God does. Paul just got done telling us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we don't know how to do something, a good place to start is what does God say about it? And, and the answer is, when it, when it comes to reaching the lost, the answer is a lot. Way more than we've got time for this morning. But as we, as we head to the finish line of our message, would, would, you, would you consider one verse? And it's not one that we usually associate with evangelism. But it might put this idea into reach and it might make an uncomfortable concept maybe a little bit more accessible. Acts 17, 26. What, what? Yeah, Acts 17, 26. Paul's preaching in Athens. He's preaching to Gentiles. And he says, he, God, 
has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What Paul just said, what he just told us, what he just reminded us of is that God has placed us where we are. Where we live, where we work, where we socialize, where we shop, who we live with and work with, who our friends are, who our family is, where we do business, the restaurants we eat at. We are where we are because this is where God has placed us, where he's sent us. And and he might send us somewhere else, other places, other people. But until he does, we are here. This is our mission field. We are on mission right now where God has sent us, where he's placed us. Our beautiful feet, verse 15, are where God has led us. And it's where God intends to meet us. Anoint us, equip us. Why? Because there's ministry all around us. The lost are all around us, yes? We live near them. We call them friends. We work with them. We shop with them. The lost are all around us. And we have to assume we are where we are because God wants to use us to share Jesus with them. That's what it is to be his body. That's what it is to be the church. That's what it is to be a Christ follower. So what do we do? You're telling me what, Patrick? Do this, do this. How? Better ask God than me. Because he knows more specifically, more concretely for you in your context. But a few broad practical suggestions to get us started. How? Do we love the lost in our lives? Step one, see them. (laughs) In our family and neighborhoods and work and social and economic context, there's a lot of people there and a lot of people that we look right past every day. We're sort of vaguely aware of their presence, especially when we need them, but otherwise we sort of tune them out because we're busy, because we're on our phones, because out of sight, out of mind, because we're busy thinking about our problems and because we've already gotten what we need. Want to be used of God to reach the lost? Want to have beautiful feet? See them. Learn their names. The most joyful sound in anybody's ear is the sound of their own name. Learn their name. Remember it. The next time you see them, use it. And ask them something about themselves and remember it. And follow up on it. Until they start to become people in your eyes. Not just the guy that you get a corn dog from or the woman who sacks your groceries or the person in the next cubicle. No, they're souls that Jesus died for. See them. And as you see them, pray for them. As you get to know them, as you find out things about them, their family, their situation, their their struggles, pray for them. I know very few people that I've ever asked, hey, how can I pray for you, that haven't given me some answer. And yeah, initially it might be very superficial. But funny thing, if you go back to the restaurant two weeks later and you remember and you say, hey, what happened with your cousin? If you go back to Dylan's a week later and say, hey, how did things turn out with your your kids? 
people will open up more and more. Even if they don't, though. God, God wants to meet us in this ministry. A lot of times, God speaks to me about how to pray for people in my daily time in his word. If I'm in Colossians 4, God's reminding me to pray. God, open doors for the gospel. If I'm in Ephesians 1, God is reminding me. Lord, bring them a revelation of Christ Jesus. If I'm in Psalm 119, God is shouting at me, pray that, that they would turn their eyes from the things of the world. 2 Timothy 2, I'm going through with some guys, and, and we, we read there, God, wake them up. Bring them to their senses. Matthew 9, God, send other people to them. Flood them with people, all speaking of the same Jesus. Pray for them. Prayer changes things. Expect it to pray, but change things. Praise God when it changes things. Keep track of the people that you're praying for and God answering prayer. C.S. Lewis talked about keeping two lists. He said, I have a list of people that I'm praying for and I have people that I'm praising God, people that I'm praying that God would save and people that I'm praising God that he has saved. And he said, my greatest joy in life is to move names from one side of the list to, to the other, from one column to the other. See people, pray for people, connect with people. You can see that these are overlapping. These aren't neat and distinct. But connect with people. Whatever your existing connection is, deepen it. Pursue it. Look for things to invite people to. Hey, you want to get coffee? You want to grab lunch? You want to come to this church event? Hey, my church is having a men's breakfast. Hey, there's a movie out that tells the origin story of that goofy church that I go to. You want to go see it? Look for opportunities to serve people. Hey, I'm mowing my lawn. Can I get yours? Hey, I'm raking leaves. you mind if I get yours? Hey, I'm going to run into Dylan's. Do you need anything? Can I watch your kids? Hey, I noticed that your, your kids haven't come visit for a while. You wanna, is it okay if I just come and, and, and bring coffee over sometime? There's, 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 there's no magic bullet. There's no set formula. But if you're paying attention, if you're praying, you'll see opportunities. See, pray, connect, share. Share what? I don't know. Ask God. Is there a book? Is there an article? Is there a podcast? Is there a sermon that would be the right conversation starter? Hey, would you read this? Listen to this? Check this out. Maybe we can talk about it. Be spirit-led. Be careful. I know so many people who have a go-to. Oh, I give everybody this book. Oh, I, I tell everybody to listen to this message. I don't know. Everybody is a big set. <laughs> That's a lot of different people. Oh, but I really like, it's not, a, love is about others. <laughs> What's going to love them? How does God want to speak to them? How does he want to provoke them to jealousy? Share with people. Share something that you've heard or read or seen that, that, that God puts on your heart. Share something that you've lived. Share the story of Jesus in your life. The thing about a testimony, no one can tell you that it's not true because it's your story. You were there, you lived it. Hey, this is what happened. This is, this is how Jesus met me. This is what he means to me. You've got a tremendous stewardship responsibility over your testimony. God has given it to you, but it's not just for you. Someone in your life needs to hear your story. We go through things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We go through things to love people who are going through things. Who needs to hear your story? But while you're sharing, be sure that you're listening. Before you share and while you're sharing and after you're sharing, be sure you're listening. Don't make it about you. It's about them. 
Ask yourself, where's the spotlight? Is it on me? Or is it on Jesus? And what Jesus wants to to do for them and what he wants to be for them. And if you're listening, you'll know where their focus is. Because love is listening and listening is love. Don't kid yourself that, that you know someone else's pain. Don't fool yourself into believing that you understand what it is to walk in their shoes. Because no matter how similar your stories are, there are always important differences. I, early on in my ministry, I'd come across someone, hey, you're, you lost your father? I lost my father. Your father killed himself? My father killed himself. We're twins. <laughs> Except, no, I don't know their relationship with their father and if it's, it bears any resemblance to my relationship with mine and what it meant and what happened afterwards. But what I know is that, hey, you're in pain. I know what it is to be in pain. You're experiencing loss. I, 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 I've had my own experience with loss. And, and can I talk to you about my journey and how Jesus brought me through? And as I do, I'm listening. And as I'm listening, I'm seeing. And as I'm seeing, I'm praying. And as I'm praying, God is showing me, okay, here's another way of connecting. And as I'm connecting, God is opening doors to share another level, another dimension, another aspect. And then I'm listening, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it's not a formula. Do not, do not, do that not. Turn this into a recipe. Jesus doesn't do recipes. He doesn't give us a map. He wants to be our guide. He wants to lead us step by step. This is five bullet points. It is not the be-all and the end-all. But submitted for your consideration if you're not consistently sharing your faith, if it's been a long time since you shared the gospel with anyone, maybe it's a place to start. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? We're sent, brothers and sisters. That's the bottom line. We've been sent. We are sent. We're here because God has placed us here. He sent us here. And this is the place where he'll anoint us. And this is the place where he'll meet us. And this is the place that he has called us to be witnesses to tell the people who are in our lives right now about Jesus and to lead those people, those who will listen, those who will believe, to lead them to Jesus. God has called us and he's equipped us to reach the lost. Because if we look around, you see and I see, verse 16, not all have obeyed the gospel. If they had, we wouldn't be here. Our work would be done. No one left to tell about Jesus. Let's all go home. But not all have obeyed the gospel, which makes it so important, so critical that we obey Him. And Father, we say that and... That idea meets with fear in so many of our hearts. It finds resistance in so many of our minds. The word but shouts from within us. But everything we have is from you.
Every good and perfect thing is from above. And the only right response to the grace that you've lavished upon us is to hand it right back over to you. To say, here we are, Lord, use us. To make our time and our treasure and our talent available. Lord, where would you have us go? Who would you have us speak to? Who are the people whose names we should be carrying around on an index card or on our phones and and praying for constantly throughout the day? Who are the, the people that we should be seeking to interact with, to see, to listen to? Lord, our lives belong to you. You've purchased them with blood. And you've invited us into the unspeakable privilege of continuing your ministry to seek the lost that they might be saved. Teach us, Lord. Teach us and empower us and war with our fear. Put this world and the rejection of the world and the foolishness of this world in perspective. That we might live for you pointing people to you, glorifying your name. 